This is Heather Levitis, Duke Plastic Surgery resident on the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery lecture series. This lecture series is designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. I have with me here today Duke Plastic Surgery Division Chief and Program Director, Dr. Jeff Marcus, and Duke Plastic Surgery Associate Program Director, Dr. Brett Phillips. Today's topic will deviate from the normal in-service material review to discuss a topic we think many medical students will find informative, the match process. We'll talk first about the sub I process, move to the application and interview process, and then talk about what program directors look for and consider when making a rank list. So maybe Dr. Phillips, um, could you start off uh, explaining to our listeners um, how our visiting sub I process works and how medical students go about um, obtaining a sub-I at Duke? Yes, that would, that's not a problem. Uh, thank you, Heather, for allowing us to speak on this topic. Um, our sub-interns are a very important process of both our residency and potential future um, residents of our program. And the way we currently structure it is that students sometime in the winter months prior to the sub-internship rotations that usually occurred, occurred uh, towards the summer uh, to begin and going into the fall. Uh, they apply during the winter, and the best way to do that is to go on our website and follow instructions for the sub-internship process, in addition to calling our program coordinator, Colleen McDowell, who, um, who, is, who has become a huge um, help in getting sub-internships to come through our program and uh, help us through this process. So once we get uh, someone who's interested to give us a call or apply through the, uh, the medical school uh, sub-internship program, we look through different uh, application uh, parts which can include the CV, uh, step one scores, and uh, things along that nature to make sure that, uh, you know, the person that's applying, you know, remains, remains competitive with the other applicants that are trying to come in. Uh, because there is so much interest, uh, we do have to screen some applicants. Uh, we try to limit about four applicants per rotation block of four weeks. Uh, which also uh, depends as far as total number of how many internal students and internal sub-interns that we have to take. All right, that sounds good. Um, and then I know as a PGY-5 now, when I applied for a sub-internship, we used the Visiting Student Application Service, and I believe that's still sort of the governing system for applying for sub-internships. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct, and I know some – Sub-interns will say that was uh, that was and is not the easiest application system to go through, and that's why having Colleen, our program coordinator, assist students to try and get them through that process and try and preserve a spot during the time period that they want to come until that uh, clearance happens uh, by our medical school. Got it. And then uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what each four-week rotation block looks like for our students. I know we've sort of been adjusting and adapting to feedback in real time, um, but just sort of what the overall structure of that four weeks looks like. 
Sure. Yeah, that four-week block has changed over the years and does continue to change based on feedback from our residents and our sub-eyes that rotate with us. We try and structure it one week is based on our major reconstructive service uh, at our main hospital, another week with our craniofacial and pediatric plastic surgery uh, team, another week uh, that goes to uh, hand, the hand service or even lower extremity uh, trauma service, and another week is dedicated towards our community hospital group uh, at the Duke Raleigh Hospital, where it's mostly uh, elective breast surgery, including uh, autologous breast reconstruction and um, other types of uh, uh, community-based plastic surgery uh, surgeries. All right. Awesome. Dr. Marcus, do you have anything you'd like to add? Yeah, thanks, Heather. Um, you know, the just looking at it from a from the uh, maybe a larger perspective, you know, overall the the sub internship programs, um, and I'll generalize this not not just to, to Duke but to to all places. I think there's some similarities in the way that we the programs view this. Um, you know, sub sub internships are important because they are uh, something something of an audition, really. Uh, so, in a general sense, it gives the not only the programs an idea of uh, what an applicant has to offer, because you know, frankly, there are a lot of things that individual students bring to the table that are not on paper that you wouldn't realize are there, and you don't see them until you actually get a chance to work to, together. And so, from that point of view, uh, um, it's a very, very valuable process uh, for us um, to get to know people, and it gives uh, gives individual students opportunities in some cases maybe that they may not have gotten um, uh, without actually being able to have a chance to really show their stuff. On the other side, it also gives the students a chance to see what's really going on because, you know, as I, you know, I remember looking back um, when, uh, when I was a student, this goes back to you know, 1994, and at that time there were, I think, roughly 14 or 15 integrated programs in the whole country. Um, you know, and you ask around and you ask your mentors, you say, well, what's, what are the, you know, what are the good places? You know, what might work for me? What do you think about this? And you, you know, you take that on, on faith. You trust your mentor um, to give you good guidance. But, you know, in the end, it's, you know, it's just, a, it's an opinion. Um, it may not even be based necessarily on an in-depth knowledge of the program. It's just kind of a general idea. Um, but it's what you've got. And there's really no, you know, no great "Quote unquote rating system for this either because you know the even even what few systems we have like if you look at like for example Doximity and there's some objective criteria in there as far as research rankings go because they use actual data but um, the quote unquote ranking is really just a subjective um, it's a subjective vote you know no more scientific than uh, voting for your class president in high school really so you know, to know what a place is really like, the bottom line really, and this is what I tell the students that, you know, who, who are my mentees, that you got to see it. And if you really are interested in a particular place, uh, then um, it's probably a useful thing to do to actually schedule the time to do a sub-internship at, at that type, at that place. Uh, and then when, once you've gone, um, there's, you know, there's really not much to hide. If you've spent uh, 30 days in a place, you really do get a sense about what they really, really are all about. So, uh, just looking at it in the broader sense, you know, from not, again, not to Duke, but everywhere, is that it, it is a very useful tool um, bilaterally to determine how, um, how well individuals uh, will fit with programs and programs will fit with individuals. 
that makes perfect sense to me. Um, and I completely agree. Um, I get the question a lot from sub-interns. They ask, how many sub-internships do you think I should do? And I never really know how to answer that question. Uh, do you, either of you have a good answer to that question? That's, that's, that is a great question. And I think, you know, there have been several studies and surveys that have looked at these uh, type of questions of how many you have to do. And, and I, I, I don't think that answer can be set to every individual person. It's, it's really, you know, set to each person, how they perform at a place, if they're, how many places are they truly interested in going. Uh, I know people do anywhere from two to five uh, sub-internships. Uh, the negative is that it's expensive, it takes a lot of time, um, and potentially takes away from other learning aspects that you could at your uh, home institution. So there, there are pros and cons. But uh, I'd probably say uh, at least, I mean, I'd say anywhere from, you know, I'd probably say three to four might be the ideal number, but it's, it, it's really hard to say. I did one at my home institution, uh, which was SUNY Stony Brook, but at that time, um, there was no integrated plastic surgery program at my home institution. So that sub-internship did not actually count as a sub-internship. It was more an elective. Um, so I, like some other students who may be coming from places that don't have an integrated program, also then had to do a general surgery sub-internship. So then on top of those two rotations, I did another three away rotations, which ended up being almost like five months of sub-internships, which proved to be rather exhausting. So I would recommend potentially against that, but I guess hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> Yeah, the it's a, it is a difficult question. Um, I think that there are, first of all, I, I don't think that it's absolutely mandatory that a student do a, um, a sub internship in order to um, uh, in order to match at a, at a certain program. I think in some cases it could help a lot though. And so the people that um, I think it would help the most are, for example, like so I think you mentioned students. Um, uh, who are coming from programs that don't have a plastic surgery or schools that don't have a plastic surgery training program. Um, that is their best way to get around and to be seen and to get to know people. And, you know, yeah, it will create more work for that individual because, you know, because of that fact. But, you know, when you go to, when you go to med school, you don't necessarily know what exactly you're going to do later on. And um, sometimes, you know, these things happen, they evolve and you, you, you know, have an epiphany that there's this, you know, there's a specialty that calls for you and, um, you know, yet uh, you don't have all of the advantages you would have if you had a very big, robust program within your school. So I think those individuals probably do need to do more visits so that they can really uh, show what, they, what they're capable of. Uh, on the other hand, I think that there are some really, really strong and capable students who are coming from programs um, uh, that, you know, already have our schools that, that have a robust, you know, plastic surgery program, and they're probably uh, having opportunities to get involved with publication and they're getting into meetings. They're meeting um, some people as they're doing this and they're making, you know, kind of a name for themselves. And, uh, you know, I don't necessarily think that uh, that those individuals, you know, have to probably uh, don't have to do quite as many. I think that they come, they're coming from a position of a bit of advantage there. Um, so it's, it's tough. It's tough. I know that sounds unfair, but it is, um, it is true. So I think people need to look at what their situation is and be realistic. And when you need to work harder, you work harder. 
Um, I, I will say that, you know, some people ask whether uh, it's a prerequisite. And I thought that, too, when I was on the trail, that there were certain programs where it seemed as though it was almost a prerequisite. I don't think that's the case for the most part. Um, I don't know that there's perhaps some exceptions to that, maybe some places. But, uh, you know, I think there is, there's truth in that, you know, a known commodity probably does have a little greater chance. But if you look in any program, there are plenty of people, and ours included, people who did not do subaternships um, and who were not from, from the school. Um, so it certainly does happen. Yeah, with with that, all, all I would add is that going through applications from this past year, I don't believe I saw any application that had less than two away rotations in addition to their home rotation, which then would basically be three sub-internships. So I don't think I saw anything less than that. I definitely saw more than that, but I, I definitely agree with what Dr. Marcus said that I think certain people are maybe have set themselves up better or in a better situation based on uh, a home program and what they've done during medical school um, research wise and contact wise with various meetings, presentations, all that kind of stuff that could put set them apart without actually having to do that many away rotations. All right, I think that's a great segue to sort of the next topic that I think a lot of medical students um, have at the forefront of their mind, and that's uh, their experience with research and what their uh, CVs look like um, when they submit them to ERAS after their sub-eyes. So what are some things that are important for medical students to have on their CVs or some sort of red flags that you, looking at an application you would be, you know, would kind of raise an eyebrow in terms of research? Uh, well, I can I can start with that um, first. You know, we look uh, we look at a we look at almost all of our applications with the help of our program coordinator and go through them individually and don't necessarily screen based on a certain score. Now, what I will say is that there are programs out there because you know, going through almost 300 applications is is a lot of work, and in order to sometimes uh, decrease that volume of applications that we go through, there's a screening process based on step one score. Uh, so that does happen out there. Um, not every program does that, uh, but that can happen. Um, once once you go through the, the applications, things that I find, I know Dr. Marcus will talk about things that he specifically looks for, uh, but things that I initially look for are letters from people that uh, I know of or are prominent in the plastic surgery field and looking at looking at and reading their letters and their ACAPS form as far as where they would place you amongst other students and some of the um, uh, percentiles of where they would place you in comparison to other students that have come across their way this year. That, that can be very important. And like I said, the letters are very important. Uh, you should have letters from your own institution that are supporting you in addition to letters from outside institutions that say basically the same thing as your home institution does, that somebody from an outside place recognizes that you have the talents that your home institution realizes that you have. So I find that to be very important. Obviously, competitive competitive scores and grades throughout medical school are uh, are valuable. 
in addition to research, there doesn't have to be a specific amount of research, but some research effort in the plastic surgery literature, including presentations, book chapters, or other publications are important. Basically just trying to establish a very well-rounded applicant. Yeah, thanks, Heather. Um, so on this particular topic, um, I would say, every, first of all, every program is going to be a bit different. So uh, different programs are going to look for different people because the character, uh, the characteristics of the programs are so different. Uh, some are very, very much in tune with um, a particular style of practice and learning. You know, some are very, very clinical in orientation. Um, some have very little uh, research activity. Some have very, uh, a very robust uh, research program. Um, so it, it really depends, you know. Um, so the, I don't think there's a, there's there's really one answer to this. Is that um, I think that it's incumbent really upon the student to put their best foot forward to make themselves um, um, shine as best as possible. And as Dr. Phillips said, a well-rounded person um, certainly does stand out. The uh, the step one board scores this year. My understanding is that they're going to be moving to a pass-fail system and. There were, I think, there were programs that used the the score as uh, as, a, as a tool to help them screen, and they would set um, perhaps they'd have minimums that they would look at. Um, but uh, in the event that this is going to be a reality, then you know that that won't be that won't that tool won't exist. So I think again, uh, is that good or bad? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that um, because I know plenty of, of you know phenomenal students. Um, who were close to, but maybe didn't meet some threshold. And uh, there are a lot of a uh, lot of really um, really uh, important other ways that someone can make themselves stand out. So I will talk about you know just some some of the things that I see that I'm looking at that I value. But remember, of course, that you know I'm one person, and you know um, and we are one program. So uh, other places may may view things somewhat differently. Um, being well-rounded, as Dr. Phillips said, I think um, students who have had success in the past, success predicts future success. People who have had successes in different types of areas, in different things, so of course academically, um, or maybe it was research. Maybe they've been very successful in doing research, and um, maybe it was um, uh, in terms of work that they've done in public policy or in a business in business school. Maybe they've uh, studied business and they've had another degree. Um, Students who have worked in, uh, in perhaps in, in another area and were successful in another area, but then uh, chose a different direction for themselves. So again, my point being, I think success predicts success. Um, so we look for that. Things that are, um, I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, things that stand out, things that are different, things that are maybe unusual about somebody. Not everybody has to do the same thing. There is no cookie cutter. And so somebody who has done something of great interest, who could bring something unique and different. So I will say. Uh, with each program, one has to consider what are the value, what are the values of that program. Now you can't change yourself to match all programs and their values, but so for example, diversity, where does that play a role? Well, we happen to value diversity, um, diversity of thought as well. So people who bring different ideas, um, to the table who have had different types of experiences, um, there's, you know, a myriad of ways that, uh, that diversity can be described. Leadership. People who have uh, demonstrated uh, great leadership in, in the past. Now, will every program say this? I'm not sure. I don't know. But I will tell you that teamwork and leadership are extremely important. And the reason why I say this, uh, and I'm so emphatic about it, is that 
if you consider, you know, where students are coming from and going through life, you've gone through high school, successful, test scores, successful, apply to, uh, to college, success, uh, do well in, uh, in college, take the MCATs, um, going, uh, getting, getting to go to a, uh, a great medical school, one success after another, um, based in large part, it's individual efforts, it's hard work, um, it's all of the other activities that one's doing, really focusing on making oneself the, uh, the best that one, you know, one can be. So up until the time you graduate from medical school, it has all been really about, uh, a, lot has, a lot has been about preparing yourself for this next step, this big step. It's all about preparing yourself. But when you finish, guess what happens? You just join a, you join a group. And now you're supposed to be functioning in a group and you want to be a, a cohesive group and you need to be able to function effectively. But you have a whole bunch of very, very smart and very, very successful people who have looked after themselves for a, a long time. And now they actually have to function in this, um, you know, this matrix and a hierarchical structure in some cases uh, and be effective. And so seeing where someone has, has been able to do that in the past in some whatever way, um, could be in, a, in, in team sports, could be in whatever in activities that they've done where they've demonstrated that they can show leadership or that they've been able to show some experience with teamwork. I think those things um, are important. There isn't really a cookie cutter for that either. Uh, I personally take a look at, um, I really do read the essays um, because sometimes, you know, a very, someone writes, sometimes um, students will write some very, very thoughtful things about some experiences that they've had and then finally, you know, just going back to um, what Dr. Phillips had said before about those uh, the letters in particular, um, and we can get into more on this one if you want, Heather, but, um, you know, of course you want to have um, people who are known, right, ideally, but even more importantly than that, I think, is that they need to know you because a lukewarm letter from somebody who doesn't know you very well, they would love maybe in some cases to write something great, but they just don't know enough to do it. So um, the best case scenario is to have a very strong letter from someone who um, others know. But if you can't have that, then it, it should be a really good strong letter, strong letters for people who know you very well. Uh, yeah, let's uh, continue to talk a little bit more about letters of recommendation. Um, so in terms of letters, what are some things other than, um, you know, a, it being a strong letter, is there anything specific that, do you look for, and are there some things in letters um, that are red flags? Um, how do students go about choosing who to write their letters, and um, does any other words of wisdom you might have for the students? Yeah, so that's also a difficult question because the students don't actually get to see these letters, so they don't know what's in it to be able to decide which letter they should use or not use. Now, it's my understanding that applicants can get many letters and then choose which letters they use for individual programs. So what I would say is that applicants should likely use their, whoever they think is their strongest letter, in addition to if they're going back to a program that they got letter from, probably to use that letter um, also, or if, if they want to show case how, how successful they were at different rotations, they could use different letters. But they're never going to know exactly what's said in that letter. Um, they usually have to sign off that it's uh, that that they haven't looked at it and haven't been able to read it. But like Dr. Marcus just said, they have to feel that they have worked with the person long enough uh, 
and gotten to know that person, and that person has got to know them well enough to be able to write a strong letter. Now, in a strong letter, most letters say the same thing, which is basically a description of their CV, their step scores, their research, uh, their uh, extracurricular activities, and all that. I think some of the key things are trying to use specific examples that they obtain from evaluations of those students. And that could be from the person writing a letter where they share a personal experience they had with the student where they were impressive or they did this without being told, um, things that they did during the rotation that were, uh, were above what other students may have done. Um, if they can get those evaluations and kind of include those specific sentences that, you know, so-and-so resident said this about the student or this attending said this about the student, um, those, I think, will form a stronger letter and give more insight and information about that person, all coming from a person that knows a lot about the applicant, and that's what makes it a, a strong letter. Yeah, um, thanks. Uh, thanks. I think the only things I guess I would add, maybe just to, I guess, reinforce the same same point I've made before about, you know, knowing, asking someone who, who knows you well always is very important. And um, it's possible that you may not, you may have however many, you know, of the letters that you have, not every single person may know you as well as another one. Um, but you certainly will want to have somebody who's going to be able to say something very, you know, on a, on a very personal level uh, with good knowledge. And then, it, you know, it may be that others may not have all, all of the same knowledge. Um, but it's, you know, basically looking at it as a as a blend. And so it's possible to have, you know, for example, um, someone who's been, you know, the most important mentor. Most people can usually identify a person that's been a very key mentor, uh, perhaps someone who's a program leader wherever at the program um, where the student is. Um, if, if it happens to be a, a student at a place that does not have a plastic surgery program, it could be from somebody who's a very um, prominent figure in general surgery but who knows them well. And it could be also there are um, letters written during sub-internships where if someone has truly, truly stood out, um, that does often come across pretty well in, in those letters. Even uh, even after only knowing somebody for, for 30 days, um, uh, it's been it's not that unusual that we see uh, a very strong letter coming out of that, especially for some of the top some of the top candidates. Okay, very good. I think that the students will find that informative. Um, and then just going back to talking a little bit about personal statements, I know Dr. Marcus, you touched on this a, a little bit, but what are some things that uh, we think make a good personal statement and what are some things that we think make one that's a little strange or raises some red flags? Well, I guess, I mean, I'll, I'll start with this one, Brett, if it's okay, and then um, I typically uh, am not looking at the personal statements as in-depth until I'm actually going to meet the person. Um, so on the one hand, it, uh, it, it, you know, it could be helpful in, in the process of going through the large number of applications that we have. In some, in some instances, um, a very good uh, uh, letter could be helpful. If you're curious about looking at where a person's coming from, as you're looking through their, the details of what their experiences have been and you see something that's interesting, um, then often you can refer to the the personal statement. You might find some um, uh, some further information there that's that could really uh, make someone stand out a little bit. Um, people can, uh, in in some instances, if there've been uh, you know 
lapses or something that they need to kind of uh, convey. They have a point that they want to make that may not come through in the other work. Uh, the, the personal statement can convey that inf- that type of information. Um, but then, as I said, you know, a lot of times when I, when I really do pay, you know, when I'm paying the most attention, when I'm really reading almost all of them, you know, it's going to be when I'm going to meet the person. And um, I'm looking for, I guess, um, a few things. Um, first and foremost, uh, um, an honest, uh, an honest and sort of a uh, representation of of a person and who they are, and you know if they're really uh, if they're speaking you know from from the heart, it does come across. So that's one thing. And it, you know what the topic is, it doesn't make too too much difference. But you you want to know that you're um, the person's coming off the page, and you really have an understanding a little bit about uh, about what makes them tick. I think that's the main thing, really, for me. I mean, you know. The, the topics can often vary. There's some standard things people talk about, you know, often, you know, um, why the decision to go into plastic surgery or um, family experiences or um, experiences from the past and things like that do come across. But uh, I think uh, something that's honest and then well-written, something that's, I mean, you know, at least for us, you know, being a, a program that has uh, as a commitment to uh, research and to publication uh, we hope that our residents uh, are going to be productive academically while they're here and to see something that's um, that's not well-written or that has any, uh, you know, grammatical errors, you know, God forbid, or things like that, you would never want to send, you know, send that in. So something that's very well-written, um, that's honest and to the point, doesn't have to be super long, um, but, you know, just to really paint a picture of the of the student. Dr. Phillips, do you have anything like that? Uh, not much. I think Dr. Marcus covered most of it. I would to keep it brief. I would I would say I don't think the letter should be too long. I think it should be very focused, uh, maybe three, four paragraphs max, and it should really like be focused on what you are trying to say and what you're trying to come across uh, along the lines of what uh, Dr. Marcus said as far as as far as topic. I would say that there is potential that not everybody will actually even read your letter um, before, uh, but it could be a help right prior to the interview where you could read that letter before the person comes in and it helps elaborate on some of the things found in the application that maybe you need more information on. So I think that to me is is helpful. And obviously it, it cannot have grammatical mistakes and should be well, you know, proofread. And yeah, that's, that's, that's a definite. And anyone that's, you know, more than, you know, it's greater than a page that's, you know, can be turned off. Uh, I would say brief to the point focused. Yeah, that's a, and I think that's a, I think that's a really good point there. And I'll just want, I'll just expand just slightly again. Um, just like in the, in the letters of recommendation, there's no need to reiterate what's in the CV. Um, we can, you know, we we have the CV and we have all of the accomplishments and and so on. But if there's something that really stood out and someone wants to mention a particular thing and what it meant to them and how they got into it and give a, a little bit of the backstory, you know, that's another that's another story. So reiterating the CV not necessary. Get to the point. Let's uh, we you know we um, those who look at these things want just really want to know who who you are. All right. So we've done our sub-I, we've written our personal statement, we have excellent letters of recommendation, and now let's talk a little bit about the 
interview process. So what can students expect uh, during their interview process, and is there anything special that they should be doing to prepare for their interviews? Uh, yeah, I can I can start with this. So what I would say just to start is that once you've gotten the interview, you've gotten past the hurdle of, you know, the academic and research requirements and all the things in your application that you've you've already cleared that hurdle. Now you're in the door and now you just have to meet everybody and have good discussions and being able to come across eloquently and polished and put together. That I think is what the interview is. You really have to come in and basically just have uh, a good good discussion, being able to answer questions on the spot. It's sometimes hard to prepare for something like that, but you have to know that you're already on the same playing field as the other people that are that are coming in the door. And what I would say is that you, one thing for preparation. So I think the biggest thing is you have to know about the program you're going to, what their values are, and who works at that program. So you shouldn't go in and not know who the program director is or who the chief is or, you know, what surgical subspecialties within that division or department, you know, have. And, you know, you should at least be able to identify what faculty members are there. And this can all be done by just looking at the program's website. So I think a thorough review of the program's website and really having an idea of of what uh, who is involved, what they're doing, and where they are going, you should be able to get a good idea from that. And if you can do that, um, I think that's the biggest start. And then then it goes down to interview questions and being able just to have a discussion, trying to be yourself, being honest, not obviously never never lying or or making you know false you know, false statements or being untruthful, I think that is probably one of the things that can hurt, you know, everybody. And there's n nothing wrong with saying, I don't know, or that's a good question. I'll think about it. Those kind of things. Um, but I'll let, I'll let Dr. Marcus uh, continue on. Yeah, I think that as Dr. Phillips said, you know, once, once a student has um, come to the interview, um, all of the, past experiences, numbers, scores, grades, this, you know, all of these things, we're past all that. And it's, it, it can become, you know, it can become relevant, especially for somebody who's been, you know, perhaps like, you know, remarkably successful in a particular area. That's, that's another story. But um, for the most part, you know, you got to think about it as though uh, once we arrive here, we're all on more or less even footing. Okay. Uh, and now it's time to really sense, get a sense about, uh, who we all are, students get a sense of who the program is, program can get a sense of who the student is, um, and they call it a match because those two things match, and um, you never know, like I said, until you actually visit a place sometimes um, what will speak to you. Um, you may think uh, uh, one way before heading out and seeing places, but the reason why everybody's lists change after they've gone out and seen these programs is that they learn things while they were there. Some of the things can be, you know, you think about what are the concrete things like the, you know, what I want to know about what is, you know, their, their the academic commitment and how much are they doing and publishing and you can look at all these kinds of things. But 
some of it comes down to just a general feel, meeting the people. And I think, as Dr. Phillips said, uh, there's so much information that actually is available now, much more than when I was doing this, is on these, you know, on the websites where you can look and they'll say flat out, this is our mission, this is our vision, and these are our values. And those things are not like, are not constructed um, on a whim, um, you know, for, for most places. I mean, it's a fairly well thought out process. Um, there's a reason why they, they feel this way. And you have to look at that, think about it, um, you know, how, what do those things mean to, uh, to you as, as, you're, as a student? Um, and then when you actually are there, um, for one, I'll say that, you know, the interview process is nowadays is pretty grueling. I mean, there's, you know, many students going on a lot of interviews now, and I know it wears on them. Um, but if you're interested in going to a particular place, um, as, as Dr. Phillips said, make sure you know the folks, know what they're about, do your homework ahead of time, but show up and be interested, be enthusiastic. If it's a place where you think you're getting a good vibe and you might be interested in this place, you you better show that, you know, let it come across that you actually have some interest or that you're, you know, that you have enthusiasm about it. Ask ask questions. Um, you know, even if you've gone, even if you've gotten something answered, you've, you, you know, you've asked someone else something before, um, but you just want to have different perspectives. You, know, you may ask something, you know, that sounds kind of similar to different people because you might hear a, a different a different perspective on it. But you know, to to sit uh, to sit in an interview and you know not seem um, eager, um, it it can come across as disinterested. And you may not be, um, uh, but it, it does uh, make you know it makes the uh, the interview a little bit um, uh, just dull. All right, uh, I think that's also all very helpful information for our applicants. Um, so now we've, we've done our sub-eyes, we've submitted our applications, we've done our interviews, during which we've been enthusiastic and not dull. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we've completed our interviews. Now what should the students be doing after the interview? I get this question a lot. Should they be writing thank you notes? Um, do they send an email? Um, do they tell you they're interested? How do they do that? Um, do they have people make phone calls for them? What do we expect um, the students to be doing, I guess, post-interview? First of all, foremost, they, um, they abide by the rules as set forth by the match. Um, and you do it to the T. And if there are programs who, are, who aren't strictly abiding by the rules of the match, um, then, in my opinion, um, that's a red flag for the, uh, for the program. Uh, because if a program is ignoring the rules on one instance when it's to your favor, then they may be willing to ignore rules later on when it's not in your favor. So um, first and foremost, uh, sir, students um, abide by the rules. Know what they are and, uh, and abide by them. And you can have contact, and I don't have all the rules in front of me, but you know, there are some ways of, of communicating um, for, for, with residents, of course. I think you can. Um, if your mentors, uh, mentor or mentors, um, uh, would, you know, would like to convey that you have a level of interest, then um, I believe that's uh, permissible and that can be helpful as well. Um, but um, those are the main two things I really just want to say is that uh, you know it's. I, re I recall when I was when I was applying, I was uh, there was a particular program um, that very clearly was was not uh, abiding by 
the match rules and um, was even actually applying pressure. Um, this was on, on me at the time. And that was the conclusion I reached at that, at that time was that um, I knew what the rules were. And if the program uh, was, was willing to, to break them, um, then it was ultimately not a place that I could go. And, you know, it turned out to be a good decision. Dr. Phillips, do you have anything else? Yeah, I would. I agree with we, Dr. Marcus, and specifically ACAPS has post-match rules about communication between applicants and the program, and those can be found on the ACAPS website. So once again, I, I, I don't know them by heart, but what I am aware of, there shouldn't be any post-interview contact between the applicant and the program director or the faculty um, at, at a specific program, they're allowed to talk to the program coordinator if they have uh, if they have specific questions that they need answers to about the program. Um, residents from the program should not be reaching out uh, to the applicant unless the applicant um, instigates uh, that that discussion. Uh, there are also no second looks. Uh, residents or applicants are not allowed to come for a second look at a program. And uh, there, I think there there is a, a couple other ones. Thank you letters are discouraged and do not need to happen. Um, and I think I think that summarized. But once again, the exact rules are published and posted on the ACAPS website. All right. I think that. Um pretty much clarifies and summarizes the, the process start to finish. Um, I don't have any more specific topics of discussion unless either of you have anything that we left out and would like to add. Anyway, thank you very much, um, Drs. Marcus and Phillips, for being with us today. I think our medical students will find this very informative, and I um, appreciate your time. Thanks, Thanks Heather. It was a pleasure. <laughs>